You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening is from Exodus 23, verses 20 through 33. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word, so we do pray now what we just sang, that you would mold us and make us into who you want us to be for our own joy and for your glory in our lives and in this world, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening and to celebrate with you all this evening. Good to see some old friends and faces and some new faces. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you are with us this evening. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, and you are here for this evening uh, to celebrate this third birthday with us. Maybe you're familiar with Christianity. Maybe you'd even call yourself a Christian, but you haven't been to church in a long while. Maybe all of this is totally unfamiliar, and you're just observing this thing called Christianity tonight. No matter who you are, we're glad you're here. And I'm convinced that no matter who you are, that God has something to say to you tonight through his word, through the scriptures, what we call the Bible. And that's all fine and good, you might be thinking, but what in the world did you just hear read? That is a weird passage of the Bible. Like obeying angels and like the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites and stuff. And apparently, uh, those who, uh, th- this angel is going to make life pretty miserable for a lot of folks uh, with like hornets and stuff. And there's some other people who, maybe us, I'm not sure, we're supposed to obey this angel. And the angel is going to make life for those who obey him like really, really good. 
Like, there's lots to eat. No one's going to get sick. They're going to live for a long time. Well, verses and paragraphs in the Bible are not like little grapes or little snacks that we find along the road that have perhaps fallen off a grapevine or perhaps that you just find and that looks good and you eat uh, by itself. They're not isolated. We have been for the past several months together as a church walking through the book of Exodus, the book in which this passage comes to us. And we've seen that this book of Exodus is a continuation of the story that began in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. That God created the world as a realm to fill, to fill up with his glory. And he created humanity that we might, as humans, join in with the triune God in a relationship, in a life of love, that we might partner with God as like the earthly middle managers to uh, rule the world in love and justice. But that humanity, we rejected this role. We rejected this vocation, this job that he gave us. Rather than listening to God for what is right and wise, our human story is that of a story of immediately listening to ourselves. And the story quickly devolved in the book of Genesis into humans actually hating God and hating others. But God did not give up on his project of love and of his glory. He did not give up on humanity. In Genesis, he called one man, a guy named Abraham, out of the world that he might use Abraham's family as like a nozzle on a water hose to usher in and to bless the world, bless the nations with the the water of God's blessing to restore the earth to the way it once was. And at the end of Genesis, it appears that God is doing just that. He is using this family to bring blessing. But then at the beginning of Exodus, at the beginning of this book, wait just a minute, this family is now in slavery. And so the story that we have been tracing over the past many months is God both keeping his promises to this family, but then showing himself to be greater and better than anything else in the world, anything else that would attract this family or the nation's love and worship. Based on nothing that they have or based on anything that they have done, God is faithful to his promises to Abraham, and he saves this family. He brings them out of their slavery And where we are right now in the book of Exodus, he is delivering them into a more permanent security of their own land to live with God and so that they might be able to live with him in peace and love him. In fact, chapter 23, what we're reading now, is basically the end of a giant wedding ceremony. The people have come to Mount Sinai to meet with God and to enter into a new covenantal relationship of love. The covenant includes the Ten Commandments as well as a bunch of other laws that are ways that God intends his people to love him and to love others, to have passion for him and compassion for people. They're soon going to be leaving this mountain. They're going to be heading toward the land that God had promised them, had promised to Abraham, the land that we heard Angela read about just a minute ago. In fact, right here is a turning point in the book of Exodus. It's almost like the first half of the book of Exodus is like the people or the story is climbing up a mountain, and then just as Moses is now descending the mountain, now their story is moving downhill. It is moving with the people as they are now moving toward the land, toward life with God. But then strangely, this section in chapter 23 has a new character which becomes the focal point of the narrative. Verse 20 in Exodus chapter 23 God says, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. 
this angel moves into the center stage and the spotlight begins to focus on him. So we're going to let the focus and the spotlight of our sermon this evening land on this angel as well. So we'll think through this second half of chapter 23 in two sections tonight. Who is this angel and what does the angel do? These are two questions that we're going to try to answer. Who is the angel and what does the angel do? And I think we'll see that there is much in this story, this thousands of year old story that is meant to speak today to us and even change our very hearts and our lives. So let's do it. First of all, this first question, who is this angel? Let's read these first three verses again, beginning in verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Okay, so this word angel just literally means a messenger. Even though we've got the image in our own heads of like a flying golden winged creature or something, uh, this certainly doesn't have to be the case. In fact, this word in its original meaning can just mean like a courier, like a, a, a messenger, someone who's delivering a message. In fact, some folks think that this is just a human guy that God is talking about. Maybe Moses himself, or perhaps the later Joshua, that would lead Israel into the land of Canaan. But Moses and Joshua act on behalf of God lots and lots of times in the, book, in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and even into Joshua. There's no need to be cryptic here. Like if we, if, 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 if they're acting on behalf of God numbers and numbers of times throughout the book, then why in the world wouldn't we just say Moses is the one that is leading the people into the land? Just be careful to obey him. Not to mention that Moses himself interacts with this angel of the Lord at the burning bush in Exodus 3. So who is this angel? Is it just a flying, floating, golden, winged creature? Like he, he pops in and out of the human realm sometimes, sometimes on people's shoulders to like get them to do and decide right things. Sometimes he pops in and out of like Southern California with his coworkers and helps Tony Danza's baseball team win the pennant or something. Uh, like the 90s were super into angels. I can't recommend that you go watch Angels in the Outfield, but I loved it as a kid. Uh, but 93, man, goodness. Wow, we got some, like, his brain is like IMDB, just on, on demand. Wow. Uh, well, while some of these messengers do appear elsewhere in the Bible, in golden splendor, even in the sky, think about the Christmas stories, right? This particular angel behaves a bit differently and is described a bit differently. First of all, just check out how closely related and connected to the very identity of God the angel is. It gets a little confusing. The people are to listen to him. The people are to obey him. He will not pardon their sin. And if they obey his voice, then God will be an enemy to their enemies. This isn't the first time that we've seen something like this. In Genesis, the angel of the Lord appears, and the angel of the Lord blesses this woman, Hagar, and, and she says, when she has seen the angel of the Lord, that she has now seen God. The angel stops Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac, and says, the angel says to Abraham, that now he knows that Abraham has not withheld his son from him, from the angel. The angel wrestles with, wrestles with Jacob and blesses him and then changes his name. He has authority over this man, Jacob. And then in Exodus, 
Like we just mentioned, in Exodus 3, the angel appears at the burning bush and speaks as if he is God. In Exodus 14, the angel is encamped with the people as they are at the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army is bearing down on them. Here's the point. It becomes very difficult, if next to impossible, in all of these instances to make out who is God and who is the angel. They seem to be acting, they seem to be operating, they seem to be speaking interchangeably, not just in the kind of way that like the U.S. ambassador to France like speaks for the president or something, but much more connected as if he is the president of the United States as well as the ambassador to France. Even though Israel was 100% clear on their monotheism, that they believe in one God and only God. Just remember the first and the second commandments. And even at the end of chapter 23 that we heard read, they are to have no other gods. Morning and evening, they would repeat from Deuteronomy 6 that the Lord your God is one. And yet, the Hebrew Bible and many ancient pre-Christian rabbis had a category that they would write on and think on often of God's distant presence, his invisible presence, as well as God's near and his visible presence of the word of God, almost acting as like a personified character acting on the earth, of the glory of God acting on the earth, of the wisdom of God acting distinct from the invisible God, acting in a distinct way from the invisible God who we cannot see and cannot in that kind of way interact with, but now on earth in a way that we are able to interact and see. I'll just show my cards in case you aren't already seeing them. There is shelf space for this kind of thinking in, in the ancient Hebrew thinking that when Jesus of Nazareth shows up as the embodiment of all of this, of the embodiment of the wisdom of God, of the glory of God, of the angel of the Lord. Israel is to listen to and obey this angel in Exodus 23. Why? Because God's name is in him. We thought a lot about the name of God when we thought through the third commandment. But we thought through how the theology of the the divine name is God's renown, God's reputation, God's glory on earth. And then when Jesus is praying in John 17, he thanks the Father that the Father has given his name to Jesus. Just as the angel of the Lord has the name of God in him, so does Jesus. In Old Testament and New, Jesus is the near presence of God made visible. As the word of God, the glory of God, the wisdom of God, all characteristics that the New Testament writers would attribute to Jesus. The triune God doesn't get made up by some new Christians a couple of centuries after Jesus or something. While the mystery and the complexity of the triune God doesn't begin to crystallize and be made fully known until after Jesus, the shelf space and the categories of the triune God have been there since Genesis 1. And so, if you weren't clear on what I just said, I am convinced that the angel of the Lord, that Israel is to follow and to obey, is the second person of the triune God, a pre-human form of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, who would later be born as a baby in Bethlehem in a poor carpenter's family, some 13 or 1400 years later after this. 
Like if you're visiting with us today, the story of the Bible is just full of some really wild stuff. But it isn't unreasonable. And in fact, we think that the story of the Bible is actually the best explanation for the universe and the best best explanation for the entire human condition. And we would love to chat with you about all of it. But if that's who the angel is, a pre-existent form of Jesus Christ himself, what does this angel of the Lord do? What does the angel do? Long story short, the angel is going to bring the people back to the Garden of Eden. No, he's not. There's no word of Eden here in chapter 23, but the angel of the Lord is to bring the people back to the place where God will dwell with them in peace and in love. And this helps us understand the whole, like, no sickness and no death parts of what we have heard read. No, no barrenness and no miscarriage stuff. These are all related to the curses that come in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve's treason and rebellion against God. In Genesis 3, God's people are now ushered into death. There would now be difficulty in childbearing, not just that it's painful, but the entirety of the childbearing process and indeed the entirety of the child-rearing process, painful and difficult, which includes infertility, which includes miscarriage. There are many handfuls of folks within this room right now who are ongoingly reminded of this reality, that the world is not in the state that it was first created and not in the state that it was intended. Even in chronic sickness and chronic disease, that God created a world to experience flourishing life, but that is not the way that it is now. We've said before that you can call this like the pinch test of the Bible. If you take... Genesis 3 on your like left index finger on this side, and then you take Revelation 20 or Revelation 19 through 22 over on, on the right side of your thumb, and then you just hold this with Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 19 and 22 on this side. The rest of the Bible explains our everyday life, the human condition of a world not as it currently is intended to be and as it originally was. And so God tells Israel, like he did in blessing Abraham, that he is going to begin to reverse the effects of the curse of the fall and of sin. Even the land will be productive. God will bless their bread and water. God says in, Revelation, or in Exodus 23, the Genesis 3 thorns of the land won't be constantly trying to choke out the produce, but God will bless the very ground to provide for his people. There is restoration here. There is reversal here. There is recreation going on in Exodus 23. He'll even drive out the folks who hate God and hate his people who are already living there. Now, we won't spend a ton of time here, like we've all, but we've already thought through many, much of these themes and realities, even the difficulties of what seems to be really violent and perhaps even genocidal. Is this, is this true? But we've thought about this, about through, through the plagues on Egypt and even when Israel fought the Amalekites in Exodus 17, but it isn't as if. Uh, here is just a nice agrarian land of the land of Canaan or something. And uh, these, many of these tribes that you heard about, the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Hivites, and the, all, all these folks are just there minding their business, growing their crops, and uh, playing board games with their kids every night. And then uh, these big bad Israelites come in like a whooping and a hollering and just kill everybody. What we know about these ancient Canaanite peoples, it, it ain't pretty. 
There's child sacrifice, there's sexual slavery, there is oppression in the name of religious ceremony, there is overwhelming violence and death in the land. So all of this is just as if somehow the Garden of Eden were actually still around, but it was now filled with people who hated God, who hated that Adam and Eve were somehow now returning to the land to live with God in peace. And so God is preparing and clearing the land clearing the garden, where ideally everyone present in the land are now living in a covenant of love, a covenant of love with God and with one another. And if the people will obey God by faith, they will live with him in peace, just as, if, just as it was in the beginning. The angel will go before the people, and he will clear out the land of their enemies. The whole thing in verse 28 of, I will send hornets before you, seems really weird and an odd thing and an odd way to clear out the land, just send like a swarm of hornets or something, but it can totally mean that the people will be running as if you run from a hornet. It doesn't have to mean that there is literally like a swarm of hornets, but like imagine someone uh, who is running from a swarm of hornets. How does that person act? Uh, This could totally be the way that people are running, which is what Rahab would later tell the spies of Israel in the book of Joshua, that their hearts were melting The people of Jericho, their hearts were melting when they heard the God of the plagues in Egypt was on his way with his people. There's a sense of dread that one would run from this swarm. The name of God will go before them and clear the land. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. And in fact, the problem with this entire chapter, the problem is it's just a repeat of Genesis 3. The people of Israel are going to show that they are not much different at all than the actual people of the land of Canaan, the inhabitants who are already living there. Israel will not listen to the angel of the Lord. They will not obey him. The narrative writers will go to some pretty great lengths to show that Israel's later kings, even at like the high watermark of Solomon, the Solomon, the wisest king to have ever lived in Israel, he gets described in ways that are almost identical to Pharaoh in the beginning chapters of Exodus. Solomon acts just like Pharaoh, enslaving others, bringing evil and injustice to the land. And so, none of the blessing that God is promising for this generation will come, become a reality. And in fact, all of the promises to not pardon their transgression, as well as the ongoing curses from Genesis 3, will still absolutely be in effect for them, which is where we find ourselves today. It might be tempting for us to stand up and hear this passage read, or perhaps open our Bibles and read this second half of Exodus 23 and think, like, wow, if I become a Christian, if I begin to obey God, everything in my life is now suddenly going to become awesome. He's going to bless me. Sounds like maybe with some financial prosperity, he's going to make it so that I don't get sick anymore. He's going to take away my disease. He's going to give me a growing family where we won't be hungry anymore. We won't need anything ever again. And apparently, all of my enemies are going to stop bothering me. My ridiculously frustrating boss or manager. Like maybe he's going to start running away from me like he's running from a swarm of hornets. That sounds great. Is that what we should conclude? Is that what this text is telling us? 
Well, the first thing that we need to ask is the same thing that we asked last week when we were considering the law. And the question is, when are we? When are we in the timeline of this full story of redemption? But then also, when are we, like currently, right now, when are we in that story? Well, in this time of coming out of slavery and then going into the land, God did make promises of physical blessing for obedient faith, as well as a curse of loss, physical loss for disobedience and sin. These promises were made to a specific people in a specific time. But even then, these promises of blessing were not a, uh, always absolute. They were not always universal. The entire book of Job gives us a whole shelf and category to put and consider suffering even in the midst of obedient faith. But also, we must consider when are we? In 2019 in Albuquerque, when are we in that story? Jesus, if we, are, if, if we agree that this angel of the Lord is a pre-existent Jesus, even if we don't buy that, but there are images that are very similar to Jesus and remind us of Jesus, the angel of the Lord has led his people out of slavery in Exodus and now. Paul tells us in Colossians 2 that while his people were dead in their sin, enslaved to whatever their selfish desires, whatever they wanted, they were, they, they were just always enslaved to just doing whatever, whenever they liked. And they were condemned in their sin with an unpayable record of debt. This is our life apart from Christ, a life of slavery and of death. But Jesus lived a life of perfect love and obedience to God. He died on the cross for them as their substitute. And by doing so, he disarmed the rulers. He disarmed the authorities that had previously enslaved his people. We sang earlier, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? The crucifixion, the death, and resurrection of Jesus has disarmed it all. The pharaohs of our own hearts and even the spiritual forces that had tempted us and led us into sin have lost their power. And now Paul says that Jesus is leading out a host of captives Just as the angel of the Lord is leading Israel out of Egypt and into the land, Jesus himself now is doing the same. A host of former captives from all over the world, from every tongue and tribe and nation. James and Peter will later call Christians, they will will call Christians sojourners, pilgrims, travelers. This is all Israel language. the, the, The Christian experience is that of wandering across the desert towards a full and final home. A home of safety and security and full blessing. A time to come, a place to come where God fully reigns over his people, driving out all opposition and all effects of the fall of Genesis 3, completely and forever. But we're not there yet. Jesus even warns his people that following him will be a life of suffering. A life of following Jesus is a life of carrying our own cross, just as if we were following behind him as Jesus carried his own cross to his own death, we too follow him to our own death. 
That doesn't sound like much of a promise of hope, but it is, because there is life through death. Even the rivers and borders described in Exodus 23 won't ever get fully realized when Israel finally inhabits the land. Solomon's reign gets close to where these uh, lakes and rivers and seas are, but not all the way, which may even suggest that this little strip of land, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, this little strip of land that's about the size of New Jersey on the Mediterranean Sea, this little strip of land wasn't the final and full land that God was preparing for his people to live in. It's like the borders of this land that never get fully realized then extend into another land, into, into another realm, into another age. Even the physical land, the author of the book of Hebrews says that Abraham was in faith in God's promises, longing not for that land itself, but a better land, a better home, a heavenly one. And so Jesus promises to be with his people always, to lead them and to be with them through the end of the age and to lead them home into an age and a kingdom where there will actually and finally, fully be no more sickness, no more death, but only a land and a life of full and flourishing life and peace. I want to read for you a prayer that St. Patrick wrote in the 5th century. St. Patrick, man, it's such a bummer. He gets such a All he gets known for is green and drinking, and drinking green things. But, man, uh, St. Patrick, he's great. He's a brother in Christ. This is a famous prayer that he wrote in the 5th century. This famous prayer that Patrick wrote is often called St. Patrick's Breastplate. This is a prayer that God's people in all times and all places, even today, in Albuquerque in 2019, you could take this prayer and pray it daily and be enormously comforted by This is a prayer that can comfort us as we are struggling through cancer, as we are struggling through divorce, as we are struggling through infertility or miscarriage or debt or late rent payments. Let me just read this for you. Patrick wrote, I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's work to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me. From snares of the devil, from temptations of vices, from everyone who desires me ill, afar and anear, alone or in multitude. And then he speaks to Christ. He says, Christ, shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that reward may come to me in abundance. Christ with me. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, through a confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. What a comfort. Christ before me, behind me, underneath me, above me, this is the angel of the Lord that is leading a host of captives home. But here's the thing. Only those who know this angel of the Lord, 
who are trusting and following the angel home can pray such a confident prayer. Only those who have heard the word of Christ and are following him towards a promised land, a time, a time of blessing towards a not fully realized but certain reign of hope and security. Well, maybe tonight is a night that you reflect. Maybe tonight is a night that you think to yourself, man, I, I always thought I was part of God's people. I always thought that I was trusting him and following Christ. I always thought that I had a, a, a good future to look forward to and to hope in. But if you are honest with yourself, are you following him? A Christian isn't just someone who acknowledges that God exists, who acknowledges that Jesus was a good man, a good prophet, or perhaps even the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus is God himself and that he lived and died for his people. A Christian is someone who has the very life of Christ now injected into their souls, that begins to course through their very veins, that his life becomes our life as we are following him. So tonight might be a night that you realize, you know what? Like I might actually be the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. I have no idea what that means, but it means that I am not with God. I am not on his side. I'm not following him and experiencing the peace of the cross of Christ that ushers me into friendship with God and adoption into his very family. Friend, just acknowledging that God exists while not leaving behind your life of worshiping other things, of worshiping yourself, of leaving all of that to instead follow Christ, it leaves you in a dangerous place. So do not assume that you are at peace with God. Know it confidently. Know peace with God confidently through the work of Christ on your behalf. We would, we would love to talk with you about what this means, about all of this, about what it would look like to follow Christ. How is that even possible? I have no idea what that even means, you might be thinking. We'd love to talk with you after the service. Christians, we are not perfect. Following Christ does not mean that you'll suddenly now live a life of sinlessness or something, and that you'll never struggle with uh, doubt or fear or some sorts of insecurities. We are not perfect. And praise the Lord that while we are weak and while we are sinful, Christ, our leader, Christ, our older brother, Christ, the angel of the Lord, he is strong and faithful, and he is leading his people by his grace. We would love to begin walking with you. We would love for you to begin walking with us as we follow our Christ. For the rest of us, even when the circumstances are difficult, when they are bad and the world would suggest that we have no reason to hope in Christ. It sure looks like he is not bringing blessing to his people. Well, then by faith, let us fix our eyes in Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and let us keep walking. Let us daily trust him to provide the grace that we need for today to trust him and to love him. We've got much more to consider in the book of Exodus. We hope that if you're visiting tonight or if you're looking for a church that you might join us next week. If you want to read ahead to chapter 24, it is weird and very strange, and you're going to have lots of questions, I'm sure, and Clint's going to answer them all next week uh, as he's preaching chapter 24. 
Uh, you can pray for him, <laughs> and you can pray for your own hearts as we consider Exodus 24. But until then, let's pray together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are leading us. And so now, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would indeed be Christ with us, Christ before us, Christ behind us, Christ in us, Christ beneath us, Christ above us, Christ on our right, Christ on our left, Christ when we lie down, Christ when we sit down. We pray that you, O Christ, would be in the heart of every man who thinks of us, just as you intended for your people Israel, and that you intend for us, your church, that you, O Christ, would be in the mouth of every man who speaks of us. Christ in the eye that sees us, your church. Christ in the ear that hears us. So we arise this evening through a mighty strength, through the invocation, the invitation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness of you, O triune God, through a confession of the oneness O triune God, of the creator of creation, the creator of us in our small lives, we pray that you would get much glory through our lives and that you would indeed keep leading us. Lead us home, O Christ, we pray. In your name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www dot Christchurchabq.com